Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I said, not everyone needs counseling, surely. And they said, well, you know, you could be going through your life completely functional and happy, not realizing that you need <laughs> counseling. And I kind of thought, what is the goal here? It's incels. We're doing incels again. We're going to be talking about why some men feel very sad and lonely and feel that they involuntarily must remain celibate, which means no sex. And here to talk about that, well, not no sex, but the incels part, is the one and only William Costello, who is from Ireland, of course, Ireland. And I'm sorry for the accent, but I'm, I'm trying to see if I can. You know, I always do an accent when I, and I'm not very good at this one, but I'm going Northern Irish and he doesn't sound like that. His is, anyway, his accent's particularly charming and beautiful. He's a lovely man. Um, and he's, he's more than an accent, really. Uh, William is a writer, an academic in the field of evolutionary psychology, who has specialised in incel culture and things like beauty and attraction. Incel, of course, by the way, stands for involuntary celibate, as I was saying before. Uh, And they are people who often hang out in the darkest corners of the internet and often feel indignant and entitled and angry that women won't date them and have sex with them. It can be very toxic in those circles, and they've been linked, of course, perhaps unfairly, as William discusses, with white supremacists and other dangerous groups of people. But as William will point out, it is not fair to paint them all with the same brush. We wouldn't do that with other subcultures and identities. At the same time, and this is just my worthless opinion, but perhaps we do judge incels a little more and a little more generally when one of them does something because the incel identity itself feels like a bit more of a choice than than something like being Jewish or Muslim or gay or straight. Uh, William has met many incels as part of his work and studies and is here to show a different side. He explains why it is that so many men feel lonely and aggrieved. We talk about the dating scene, traditional expectations of men in a modern world that don't quite fit and that feeling of exclusion that we talked about with Nafis Hamid last week and and how that can lead to people becoming quite extreme. We could sit here and judge all day but in this podcast I try not to judge or moralize so much as to ask why and how and I find everything William has to say absolutely fascinating. He's a brilliant guest and he really knows his stuff. I get the impression he could talk about absolutely anything for quite some time and and I think I'm a bit like that too. So we, we got on extremely well. Uh, in fact, before the podcast started, I was singing some Westlife, which British and Irish people will know as an Irish pop group from back in the day. Uh, I was doing this to check that he could hear me. It could be considered uh, maybe a microaggression because, of course, William is Irish and they're known as an Irish band. Uh, it could also be a microaggression as an offence to the ears 
uh, I've I've aggressed his ears with my singing and my my choice of song as well, to be honest. But you'll join us halfway through the Westlife chat, but without me singing, because I thought I don't need to affront all of you with that stuff as well. You don't need to hear that. You do hear me asking about a chair in every moment, because that was what I thought the lyrics were. But I looked up the lyrics after the podcast, and the, the lyrics to Flying Without Wings, this is. They were sharing every morning, not a chair in every moment. Um, do follow William on at Costello William on Twitter. Find some of his work in Aereo Magazine and Quillette. And join his study. He's asking for volunteers for psychology research on improving attractiveness. The link is in the show notes or or find it on William's Twitter. It just takes 15 minutes and would be a huge help for his study. He wants to know what things people do to attract a mate. I have no idea. We did a really long, funny, in-depth, profound bonus chat. You'll get that on patreon.com slash Gold, or you can sign up on Apple subscribers or through the YouTube membership, um, where you'll also get early, full episodes that are ad-free. By the way, a lot of you are often asking what podcasts I listen to and recommend. There's a great one I'm really enjoying at the moment called The Underworld Podcast. It's a show all about organized crime, mafias and secret networks from Brooklyn to Beijing that control our lives whether we know it or not. It's hosted by two brilliant investigative journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams. And I think a lot of On The Edge listeners will really enjoy it because just like me, Danny and Sean are investigative journalists. They do reports all around the world, got some languages down, and Danny even has the same surname as me, as the astute among you will have noticed. Danny Gold, that is. Sean Williams, the other fantastic investigative journalist there. They've done shows on Balkan warlords, Yakuza assassins, Kiwi bikers, and way, way more. And they've got bonus interviews with mafiosos, cops, money launderers, and a whole bunch of writers who cover this international true crime stuff. It's no wonder it's super popular, and I'm going to try to get one of them on this show as soon as possible. That's the Underworld Podcast. Get it wherever you find your favourite shows. Get in touch with them. Tell them you heard about it here. They'll be chuffed to hear that because they're now my friends. Underworld Podcast. Check that out. Before we start, I don't usually do this, but I want to show you something William said after the interview, um, which he said I could use, that I find really, really beautiful um, about how an earlier episode of this podcast with Colin Stewart, because William listens to the podcast, which is great, uh, but that podcast really affected his family life. Um, And it's a notion about space-time that I find really moving and beautiful. And I remember pointing out at the time and talking about how lovely this is. Um, From Colin Stewart, that is, the astronomer. So so here's William talking about that. I I did want to say one thing, final thing before I mention it. Uh, I wanted to thank you for the episode that you put out with, um, what's his name, with the time, about time. Colin Stewart, was it? Colin Stewart, because... He spoke about how we, our loved ones, even though they're passed away, are still out there because of this idea of the block universe, the past, the present, and the future all happen at the one time. And my girlfriend's dog, her family dog of 12 years, died recently. And I was able to show her the, that interview you did and that idea of they're all out there right now somewhere. And she just loved it, you know, it was, it was so helpful. Uh, so I wanted to thank you. That was a, a really helpful. Yeah. You can include that if you want. <laughs> I felt quite emotional hearing that. I really did. Uh, it was very beautifully put by William. 
Um, and you'll find that you'll find that episode where Colin Stewart really goes into that. That's episode seventy-three. I first heard that concept beautifully expressed by Brian Cox. You'll find that Brian Cox scene on iPlayer, BBC that is, at the end of an episode of uh, of his called Somewhere in Space Time. And it's that theory that everyone you lost in life is still out there in space time, physically there, almost as though time were part of some sort of map and you can go and trace it back and all of those memories, all of the people you lost in your life, uh, the people who are still there but were different in some way, their past iterations are still actually physically there in space-time. That's quite an extraordinary thing to think about. It has nothing to do with this episode, though, but do go back and listen to my episode with astronomer Colin Stewart if you want to hear more about that. In the coming weeks, there will be Orne Pagan to talk about drunk animals, Carl Zimmer to talk about what it means to be alive, and David Robson on the expectation effect placebos and that kind of thing. By the way, I was just a guest on the brilliant Jordan Harbinger podcast. Check that out. He did a cool artwork of me. I'm not sure uh, it looks exactly like me, but I love having that little cartoon of me. His is one of the world's biggest podcasts. So welcome to anyone who's come from there. Get in touch with me to tell me. Let me know your thoughts. If you're a new listener, subscribe and follow me on andrewgold underscore okay on Twitter or Instagram and subscribe to the On the Edge with Andrew Gold YouTube page. But for now, this is a very long intro. I never do them this long. Let's all listen to William Costello. Yeah, I was just following that Westlife song along. Is it um, some find a chair in every moment? Why is that in my head? I don't know. I'll have to, we'll have to lyric search, yeah. Put us I'm out sure of our misery. Yeah. Uh, okay, no. It must be cheer. It must be cheer. Cheer Not in cheer. every moment. That that sounds right. <laughs> uh, cheer. Oh, no. In every... You know, I might have just made that up. I can't find any bit of that. Uh, I'm not. I'm not implying you might be a Westlife fan because you're Irish. I was thinking Boyzone as well before that. Ronan Keating and everything. You know what? My girlfriend is American and she had never heard of Westlife before. So for one Valentine's Day, I really dined out on pretending I had brought all their songs. And Queen of My Heart was all just pouring oh. out of me. She was loving it. <laughs> Were you doing it with a guitar or something? No, I can't play the guitar. I, I, I tried when I was a teenager, but uh, it never stuck. That's always been my dream to sort of, well, I think it's everyone's dream, isn't it? To go back in time and sort of write Let It Be or whatever. And you were able to write all those Westlife songs. Yeah. And especially watching that Beatles documentary now, it's amazing watching the process in real life. It's uh, crazy. Have you seen that? I haven't yet. My my dad's the biggest Beatles fan. Well, I guess everyone is, aren't they? But he's another one yeah. of the many crazy Beatles fans. So he's been going on about it. He said even for him, there were times when it was a bit much, like a bit long. It's very long. I mean, you're Peter Jackson, you're this brilliant director. You can't just take a long piece of footage and just say, here you go, super fans, have that. <laughs> but uh, oh. he's getting away with it. I do need to watch it. It's, do you have that thing? I, I had that thing of like, okay, so that's the thing I need to watch at the moment. And then I get to a point where I'm like, oh, I've got half an hour free. What shall I do? And I think, oh, what, what was the thing? And I don't remember what it was. Yeah, and you, you need to have different... Uh, kind of banks of uh, content for different moods so if you're in the mood for something just in the background or if you have the cognitive yeah. capacity to pay attention to it I'm first world problems curb, curb your enthusiasm at the moment i've been going through that 
Love it. Yeah, brilliant. I'm amazed he hasn't been cancelled yet. Uh, Larry <laughs> He's David. just not he bothered, is he? Cancel proof. Yeah, like he even pokes fun at himself being cancelled in the show uh, to kind yes. of get past it. He breaks a kind of fourth wall there, I think. Yeah, and then there was there was a series recently with uh, Salman Rushdie as well. I think he got a fatwa. Yeah, the, the, uh, the fatwa, <laughs> the musical. The yeah. Brilliant. Oh, what a genius. I think he's a bit like Ricky Gervais, isn't he? I think if you're uncancelable, if you show you don't care, which implies there's a certain element to the cancelling of wanting to hurt someone's feelings. And I think if you don't care, they don't leave you alone. Yeah, you're not playing their game. It's, a, like you say, a different status game which might be on, on theme for our episode today. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, and I should get onto it because I saw that one of your answers for the bonus thing is that you don't like small talk. We should move on from no, small no. talk. <laughs> no, I wouldn't consider that small talk. This, this is interesting. This is big talk. Getting onto the meteor stuff, tell me about uh, your background, William Costello. So my background is a bit eclectic. I um, moved from Ireland to England in 2011. Uh, to do an English and education degree uh, for my undergraduate degree. And in my final year, as part of an erotic writing module, I read no a way. book called, uh, yeah, <laughs> random segue to, in my career. Uh, I read a book called Evolution of Desire by David Buss. And it was my introduction to uh, evolutionary psychology. And I kind of fell in love with the field then. Uh, after my graduation, I followed it up with a postgraduate degree in career guidance and then started a career delivering career guidance and working for a career guidance software company that often involved long commutes to and from work to our head office in Leeds. And uh, during that long commute, I kind of turned my car into a little mobile university and started listening to podcasts, uh, aud oh. audiobooks. And I found the content kept gravitating back towards evolutionary psychology. So in 2020, uh, last year, I decided to bite the bullet and go back and do my master's in uh, psychology, evolution and culture at Brunel University, London. And uh, next week, actually, uh, I graduate from that. And uh, in October of this year, uh, I started my PhD at Swansea University. Uh, oh. so, so that's kind of led me. That's a strange segue to where I am now. And uh, I suppose uh, in my other relevant stuff in my background, I've always been interested in writing and I wrote a few pieces that got published in Quillette and Ario. And uh, yeah, so I, I kind of write about uh, cultural issues from an evolutionary psychology perspective. Are you from Dublin originally? Where in Ireland are you from? Uh, no, no, I, I'm from Galway. So the, Galway. the complete other side, o over near America, the West, West Coast. Coast. <laughs> yeah oh cool Westlife country beautiful. west is that <laughs> yeah. where they're from uh, well one of them is from uh sligo or maybe two of them um oh. yeah, i can't remember which but yeah certainly one or two are from sligo which is pretty oh, near pretty near that's Gala. cool one one of them killed themselves is that right no that's Boyzone. that's stephen oh. gately uh even though actually i'm not even sure if it was definitively suicide uh okay. one of one of westlife uh did end up bankrupt though i think that ah. uh but it was Boyzone that Stephen Gately died very young. That's sad. Yeah. That's it's funny how the bankruptcy, it's like the same with footballers, isn't it? It's funny how that, I guess it's that you can't not listen and read. You want to know, you're like, wow, how can they have had so much money and gone through it? They seem like intelligent people. Yeah, that's a, for my career guidance postgrad, I did my dissertation in that um, uh, field on football as a career. And it's actually really, you know, it's such a short career, even if you do make it to the top. First of all, such a small percentage of people do make it to the top. 
uh, they're not very well looked after, you know, as young lads coming through in terms of their education. I think clubs are a little bit better now. Like they make them get the qualifications and stuff. Uh, but, you know, if you're that kind of uh, serious about your sport, you tend not to have a backup plan anyway, because you see it as kind of self-defeating. And uh, a lot of them end up bankrupt after their career because uh, they don't have another career in mind. Uh, you know, there's only a handful that will go on into management or go on into punditry. And again, that doesn't last very long, pretty precarious career. Um, and also a lot of them end up with really um, bad knee problems and physical health. And I think we're seeing a bit of that even with the dementia down the line from, you know, uh, consistent headering of the football. Uh, a lot of uh, former footballers are suffering now. It's a really interesting one, the heading stuff, because I guess it's one of those examples. And I think the, the older I get, and I'm sure you're the same, you, you start to see things rather than like, bad people and good people or bad things and good things you start to see them more as uh you're weighing up two different things and what i mean by that is with the football it's like a lot of these guys are going to get dementia early because they're heading it a lot but also we quite like watching football where they head it <laughs> and yeah so we're weighing up two different liberties and freedoms and important things and I don't know who's going to win that one because obviously dementia is much more important than us being able to watch football be the best it can. But a lot of people want to watch it. So where do you draw the line? Yeah, and particularly the heading aspect. I know uh, like when you see Ronaldo leap like a salmon yeah. and glance it in, it's it's amazing feat of athleticism. But, you know, I mean, surely we can move to enjoying the game on the ground. You know, even the most skillful teams say keep the ball on the floor is the more skillful kind of uh, approach to football. And uh, the big thing for me on that argument would be just informed consent. Can you tell me that a young 11-year-old footballer heading the ball every week knows about the downstream effects that he's getting himself into? Probably not. Uh, so that's a bit an extra layer to, to, to that debate. That is. I suppose a lot of people, and this, this is maybe an immoral and unfair to take, but a lot of people will be thinking, well, they earn a lot of money. But that's only the top ones, isn't it? That's only the top ones. And even those top ones, just for a very short time, and it's very precarious. What happens if you blow your knee out and your career is over? It could be gone like that. And, uh, you know, they get used to a very high rolling kind of lifestyle, spending a lot of money, not probably thinking about how to invest their money well. Maybe a lot of people, sharks come after them to try and get them to invest their money in some property scheme. I think Robbie Fowler has made a lot of money post-football in investing hmm. in property. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Ben Davies hmm. just did a, a business degree while playing for Spurs the last couple of years as well. So some of them are quite Interesting. You know, on it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. Well, I was going to talk more about football and I thought, that's not what you're <laughs> here for. So, <laughs> go on. Sorry. What were you going to say? No, go, no, go ahead. Yeah. It's just, uh, if you get me talking on any topic, I'll wear your ear off. <laughs> yes. Brilliant. Okay, so we've done an episode on incels before, but the listeners who didn't catch that one with Nama Cates, uh, and we'll talk about a few different things, of course, but we're going to start with incels. Tell us what an incel is for those who didn't watch that, listen to that Nama one, because uh, it doesn't really sound, the word, I used to think it was some sort of like person in a prison cell or or some sort of underground, uh, I don't even know what incel, you, you know, so yeah, give us a little background on what it is. Sure. So an incel or involuntarily celibate uh, is a kind of a, an online subculture uh, group of men who form a strong sense of their identity around their perceived ability, inability to access sexual or romantic uh, relationships. Now, a significant minority of incels engage in very misogynistic online hostility 
uh, towards women and wider society for kind of excluding them. Uh, and there are small um, uh, minority turn into even lash out at society in violent rage. Uh, the most famous of those is uh, Elliot Roger, who in 2014 killed uh, uh, six people and injured 14 others. And he wrote like a 49 page manifesto uh, talking about a, a day of retribution where he would kill chads who are the sexually successful men and stacy's who are the attractive women who reject him is uh, it well written now, uh kind of you know he, he was very uh a bit narcissistic in his kind of grandiose notions about himself um but it's it's a, a a kind of morbidly curious thing to look at i'd encourage your listeners to maybe take a look at it just to see uh, inside what a, the mind of someone like that is like. It's rare that they leave such a, uh, a, a body of work behind them, you know, to, to look into mm. their mindset. But the media tends to focus on this extreme minority of kind of the Elliot Rogers or the people who, who lash out. And they use those to represent um, incels on the whole, which is unusual because uh, our tendency usually we encourage people to not judge groups by the most extreme minority and uh, the example that comes to mind is you know the harmful stereotype as of muslims as terrorists uh, based on the actions of a, a small minority of really extreme individuals and uh, actually throughout my studies it was even found in another study not mine um, that even among incels, it's on the most uh, extreme online content and that hateful content is produced by just 10% of those accounts. So it's kind of this big uh, group uh, that the media tends to fixate on, um, uh, on the most extreme minority. And just to, to give you an example of the media doing that in action, the other big famous incel kind of violent uh, case is uh, the case of Alec Manasian. And almost any article that you hear or read about uh, incels, you'll hear about the case of Alec Manasian, who posted on Facebook um, before driving a van into a crowd in Toronto. He posted on Facebook that uh, the incel rebellion has begun and uh, we will rise up and overthrow the Chads and the Stacys. So really kind of salacious stuff, sensational. Uh, but what's less often reported is later on in the judge's verdict on the Alec Manasian case. Uh, I'll just read for you some of the ju judge's verdict. He said uh, he told lies deliberately to buttress his overall plan to depict the killings as being connected to the incel movement and get more media attention. He told every assessor that he piggybacked on the incel movement uh, to ratchet up his own notoriety accordingly. I agree with the assessors that his story to the police about the attack being an incel rebellion was a lie. So you never see that aspect of the, the story depicted in the media. And even closer to home, you have the case of uh, Jake Davison in Plymouth, who in August... Recent. That's right, yeah. So this is the first uh, alleged incel attack uh, here in the UK, and it's the worst instance of gun violence in over a decade. Uh, in the UK. Um, so this is in August in Plymouth, Jake Davison used a, a pump action shotgun to kill five people, including his mother and a three-year-old girl and injure two others before killing himself. And uh, his digital footprint kind of revealed a lot of incel terminology on his YouTube channel. Um, uh, but later, so it, it sparked a big interest in the British media to talk about whether incels should be designated uh, a terrorist group and whether there's a massive 
um, terror th level of terror threat coming from incels. Um, but later on, uh, Tim Jack, who is a deputy senior national coordinator for UK counterterrorism, uh, said that Jake Davison was not motivated by the misogynistic incel online movement when he carried out his attack. The Plymouth shooting was not terror related and the incel ideology is not a terror movement. And, uh, you know, it's just those aspects of the story that come out later on that don't really garner the media attention. They don't really make make any. They've already moved on by then. I suppose right. he was just a nutter, but to, in it, which is not, <laughs> not, not not the nicest way of putting it. But yeah, yeah. Well, his his uh, case is very kind of complex, and for me, uh, with it as my research topic, it was very surreal because it was it happened about a month before I needed to submit my dissertation, and. Uh, you know, seeing this kind of uh, a person who may or may not have been an incel or kind of on those on the borderline of involved in that community have a, like a break from reality and kind of a, a complex mental health case where his parents had even begged for mental health support um, and uh, didn't get it and things like that. To see him ha have such a, a break from reality and to lash out like that it was kind of like, oh, well, this is why you chose the topic to see if maybe you could one day prevent things like this happening or ever, ever getting that extreme. Uh, but it's just the complexity and nuance of the incel topic isn't um, done well in the media, in my opinion. It's funny, when I, I used the word nutter and I thought, oh, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I worried for a second in case a nutter calls in and says I'm offended that I'm a nutter. But then I of course, it's, you know, people with mental health issues, it's very serious and subtle and complex as well. I realized that, but I just called him a nutter and I did it and that's I'm going to have to live with that. I, th I suppose um, the media often does what you're talking about um, in, in terms of... of uh, picking on the most extreme of a group, I think that's more palatable to certain sections of the progressive or so-called progressive media when it's seen as, uh, and seen as is the important word here, punching up. I'm very sensitive to that coming from a Jewish background because that's often the case. It's seen, it's sort of allowed among progressive uh, media sometimes. It feels like punching up. And of course, incels, there's a lot of white men involved. Do you think that plays a big part in, in, in that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because uh, our usual response to the most disenfranchised groups in society is to try and prop them up or at least have sympathy for them. But when you bring up incels, people turn into the most, uh, you know, I've seen like the most kind and gentle commentators turn into, suddenly turn into hardline, Ayn Rand, individualist, objectivist, kind of every man for themselves, uh, no sympathy at all uh, for incels. So that, that's interesting. But I think, and I think you're right that it's because they're depicted as this kind of far right adjacent um white um uh, kind of group of male uh members who traditionally have, are seen as ha having power and the perhaps the the reason why there are more incels now is paradoxically because of women's liberation movements where they're you know earning more money and it might be just an uncomfortable truth that in the past uh, more men were able to to get a girlfriend or to get a wife because a lot of women were having to settle for men because uh, of either strict uh, social norms around finding a, a partner or um, kind of out of financial necessity. That no longer needs to happen now. So if you take, for example, uh, friends of mine who are like single, single moms, they're not in any 
hurry to find a guy quick at all costs because there's no social pressure on them really to do that. And, you know, that's a, a social good, uh, the women's liberation movement and they're free to earn their own money and things like that. But it, it interacts with mate preferences in, a, in an unusual way that actually kind of contributes to more incels. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. Do you ever worry uh, because of the work you're doing? And I get this myself as a journalist, you know, every topic I cover that you'll be seen as sort of incel adjacent, because even if we talk about, OK, the extremes are are bad and that they're the ones doing terrorist attacks. and It's very, very rare. But as a whole, I suppose uh, I'm just talking anecdotally here. It's not really a, it's not a cool group to be part of. It's not charming. Do you want to sort of distance yourself from that? Do you feel that urge? Well, my um, my lab mate at uni uh, always tells me that research is me search, and she. <laughs> I wonder what she means by that. What, what's she alluding <laughs> to? Um, and yeah, it's an interesting topic for me from an academic point of view because it's very understudied. 
I feel personally that evolutionary psychology in particular has a bit of a responsibility towards the incel topic because it's our theories that incels often use, maybe misappropriate, maybe use hyperbolically to kind of uh, fuel their, their worldview. So I think we have a, a bit of a responsibility there. Um, I don't want to get uh, narrowly streamlined as the incel guy and, and that's it. It's just a, it, it's an interesting topic. Um, it's a culturally very relevant one these days. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an unusual position because incels can typically be quite mistrusting of academia in general. Um, and, you know, the, my kind of how trusting they are with me is quite precarious. If I push back even a slight bit, sometimes they... Uh, they see me as you know not honest or whatever um, and but yeah like you said by the same token uh, you don't want to be seen as um, you know making excuses for any of the, the misogyny but uh, I just think that uh, given how much we talk about it in the media and in the mainstream uh, versus how little actual scientific psychological studies there have been done into it that was kind of a big reason why uh, I picked it as a topic and I also think it's a very interesting one from an evolutionary and cultural point of view, um, because you know how society and culture interacts with mate preferences and sexual selection. That's kind of right at that intersection of evolution and culture. So it was perfect for my course. But yeah, it's a tightrope at times. But uh, yeah, I hope I'm not always known as the intel guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been doing research the last couple of years into paedophiles, so. Uh, you know, I know that. For, I mean, for a couple of years, I was the exorcist guy, and I was getting emails almost daily from people just saying like, "Oh, you, you like exorcists, do you? Well, let me show you one in uh, I know that is a great." Even actually, a few days ago, people would send him, someone sent me a book, and it was a, an exorcist's book he's written. They didn't understand that I was exposing the exorcist. You know, I was like, "You don't want yeah. me to talk about this book, I promise you." Um, but but yeah, you do get sort of pigeonholed, I suppose, and they do worry about that. Sometimes you become sort of an adjacent of the thing you're. You're looking into the thing with the incels um it was interesting what you were saying before about um that i suppose part of the, the women's liberation that we have now that w women are much more independent and able to not not having to settle i suppose and i suppose if a movement around around uh, against that which which is what the incel movement is a little bit right uh, that that is misogynist i suppose by today's standards yeah it's a, it's a difficult one to rectify because uh, and even beyond that, some of the other old world solutions to the incel problem, which was always with us, uh, aren't really available anymore. So what used to happen with uh, your surplus young male uh, men in a, a community or society who couldn't find a mate, they'd be sent on, you know, like a colonialist raids to raid huh. another country. Like Vikings would be an example, perhaps. Mary Harrington has a really good uh unheard article about how incels could become the new vikings where they're kind of uh sent on pillaging raids uh, and the other outlet for a surplus young men was the monastery so you'd, you'd make monks of them and neither of those two um uh, kind of uh, solutions are available anymore but yeah like there's no going back on the economic and social good of women's liberation and nor should you you know um uh, it's just uh, but perhaps an unintended consequence that people aren't really ready to reckon with is that the incel problem creates an issue for highly educated women too because they're now finding it harder to find a, a mate to settle down uh with them because if you reduce the number of men that they're interested in at the, at the kind of the, the top of the 
mating hierarchy, those men at the top are very reluctant to commit because they're the ones in, in terms of sexual economics theory, they're the ones with the buying power because uh, they're in the minority. Uh, so, so yeah, tell it, me about yeah. sexual economics theory. I like the because I've I've heard a little bit before about this. Like, a, is it eighty twenty? There's like a percent thing going on. So that's yeah, kind of that's a, a crude analysis of what's happening. It kind of shows. So basically, uh, women prefer mates who are uh, equal or higher social status than them. Uh, and meanwhile, men's education levels are kind of. Uh, socioeconomic status is kind of going the other way it's going down so this means that you have like a culturally skewed sex ratio uh, and it disproportionately affects uh, young men with lower income and highly educated women because uh, highly educated women are competing with other highly educated women and lower educated women for a small number of men at the top because uh, in terms of male mate preference they don't really care about uh, a woman's socioeconomic status to the same degree that women do. Um, so you have a, a modern mating system that's kind of simultaneously polygynous, which means one man uh, with multiple women, uh, but it's simultaneously polyandrous, which means one woman with multiple men. But the standard deviation uh, of sex partners is very small for women, meaning uh, most women will be able to get a partner, but extremely high for men. So you have some men uh, getting a lot of sex partners and so, uh, a lot of men getting none. So to give you some figures to bring that into light, uh, there was one study in 2017 that found that compared to 2002, men overall had the same number of partners in of sex partners in 2013, but that the top 20% of men had a 25% increase in sexual partners and that the top 5% of men had an even more dramatic 38% increase. So you kind of have a, 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 a large degree of variance for the men and a small variance for women. Wow. How many, yeah, these, how many partners are these like super handsome socioeconomically high men getting? Well, you wonder, and it's just a, a lot of things are playing into that because, uh, you know, with online dating, you have access to a potentially unlimited stream uh, and your reputation isn't brought with you really, uh, you know, perhaps uh, evolutionarily in our ancestral environment, we would have maybe encountered perhaps uh, a couple of dozen potential mates in a lifetime and sexual rejection would have been very kind of uh, catastrophic in that kind of environment. So now with online dating, with uh, travel between big cities, big populated cities, you have access to so many, uh, so many more options. So uh, yeah, it's interesting, the, the ones who are, uh, and that actually might make the rejection worse for incels because, uh, you know, it, realistically, if you think about it, uh, rejection shouldn't hurt that much because you just say, oh, well, uh, there's so many other options, but that's not the environment in which our psychological mechanisms evolved. We're, you know, our psychological mechanisms evolved in an arena where sexual rejection would have been potentially catastrophic and the reputational damage of that or the reputational damage of sleeping with a lot of women and never committing. That would have been uh, damaging in the past too, but less so now because, you know, you're in a big city, you don't know the next person you might meet. Oh, uh, that's interesting. I I, ne I never thought of it as like sexual rejection. I've been in a relationship now seven years, so it's been a long time um, since I was single, but I always saw it as like, a, I was looking for a partner or something like that. I just saw it, but and so it was a rejection 
entirely of me like and i suppose that was what a rejection feels like it's literally somebody go, there's no it's not like a, a book or an article when the editor says like no it's not what really what we're looking for but you could write this for someone else. it's really saying like your essence is i just don't find that appealing that's a hard thing to to take do you, uh, do you personally do you get do you get that are you single do you you don't have to talk about that stuff uh, if you want to actually. Uh, no, I, no, I'm, I'm not single at the at the moment, but uh, yeah, re- rejection, like uh, the mating market and competing in that hurts, and it's a it's a it's a kind of a gauntlet that you have to run, right? And the most sexually successful men that I know, they're resilient. They are able to get rejected and get back up and try again straight away, and they say, "Oh, her loss or whatever." You know, it's uh, and maybe that's what's lacking in incels, or perhaps they just perceive competing in this mating market as too anxiety-inducing. And you know, in this mating market, you're kind of there's an expectation that men will pay on first dates. That's a, a very strongly culturally ingrained thing. Um, you know, it, it's not easy to get yourself pick yourself up after rejection after rejection after rejection and go again so you find that you know a lot, a lot of people say oh who could identify as an incel but the more i looked at it i kind of saw that they were trading one identity the incel identity which gave them fraternity a sense of meaning an easy black and white schema through which to view the world a victimhood identity uh, a, a kind of a, a fun, rich lexicon of kind of trolling terminology that, you know, they get a, a lot of kicks out of and a, a common enemy. There's a lot there that they get a strong sense of identity out of. And, you know, why why wouldn't they choose that over competing in a mating market where they're not likely to succeed and they find expensive, exhausting and anxiety inducing? So I can kind of, yeah, I can kind of see why they would come to that decision. It's not one I would go to myself or think is desirable but i can see why they would come to that conclusion yeah i i again remember and i think a lot of people had this in adolescence as well and then you get to an age where you think okay like i'm not entitled to have women be attracted to me i don't i don't you know but i remember being 18 or so or 17 16 and there were a couple of guys who seemed to get all the girls and as you say there was some fraternity some camaraderie in having two or three other mates who you would look to and we'd sort of go like oh we all got no one no one you know no one wants us and it was like a we could joke together and we could make jokes about the guys who got everyone and i suppose the incel thing is like you're still adults and you're still in that place and it's gone a little bit further and so i could see how that could have gone that way for many of us yeah absolutely and it's just kind of uh maybe hopefully aging out of that and not letting it fester into a resentful identity and take hold of you it's uh, yeah i was interested in um your previous conversation with nafis um uh, talking about those uh, the pathway to radicalization and i'm interested in this pathway to inseldom of what is that uh, history is there a strong history of humiliating sexual rejection or what makes someone come to identify uh, as incel and i'm interested in these ideas of uh, how did he describe it? Like a cognitive opening of an opportunity in which another identity oh, yeah. could have been cemented. So, uh, you know, it, and and for me with incels, I think it would have to be like an extremely online type of fandom or something because, you know, let's face it, we're all perpetually online now. Uh, so, it's it, you know, it's maybe an easier uh, idea to think that incels might replace that strong incel identity with another online identity rather than just saying, 
or get outside more or go on more hikes or whatever that we should all do that but we don't you know What's the deal with the Pepe the Frog guy? Because he's sort of, I guess he's not an incel thing necessarily. A friend of mine always uses this Pepe the Frog thing because he likes Bitcoin. And I said to him, you know, that's like either an incel thing or like a right wing thing. I'm not even sure. And he's like, nah, no, it isn't. And then he keeps sending me these frogs all the time. What's going on with that? So, yeah, so a lot of incels will engage in what's called shitposting and trolling and kind of trying to find anything they can that will really just push people's buttons and kind of be subversive about society. And I think that's what, the way they would see Pepe the Frog. There also is that then links and the incel movement is, you know, it's it's often described as alt-right or far-right adjacent. Uh, so that's something I wanted to study in, in my dissertation. Um, and in my literature review, I found some of the, some other studies that had analyzed their online content and they found that just 3% of incel posts online were considered racist. And just uh, that was uh, coming from 10% of the most extreme incel accounts. And another study found just came to the conclusion that the racism on incel forums, uh, while kind of disgusting to see, um, it, it is kind of, in, in, it's different in character uh, to like a white supremacist forum. And a lot of the racism on incel uh, forums might be, highlighting what they see as the racism of the mating market. They, they're, they're very engaged and energized by trying to point that out, uh, which seems an unusual move for a far-right white supremacist movement. Uh, but in my study, which is, as far as I know, the second biggest sample of uh, incel participants uh, in any study that I know of, uh, with 143 self-identified incels, um, now, it's not published yet. It hasn't been peer reviewed or anything like that as of yet. Um, but these were, there were my findings, preliminary findings. Um, I found that just 19% of my incel uh, sample reported to have a right wing political affiliation and fewer incels than would be expected by chance were actually white. Um, so, you know, that's interesting. It, it, you know, maybe that might be a way of garnering more sympathy for the, the incel movement is by correcting for that perception. I, I was surprised that it was such an even spread of political ideology and encourage more research to be done specifically on that. Um, but it is interesting how you immediately have more sympathy or uh, perhaps some people have more sympathy when they hear that it's a, a, a problem for a lot of ethnicities, not just angry young white men. Do you find yourself... Um wanting to or feeling the need to qualify any sort of statement in in defense of of incel culture or anything with the fact you know uh the misogyny is not good and this kind of thing. Do, do you find people are they having a go at you are they attacking you going hang on you know women, women shouldn't have men leering at them and or being annoyed that they you know that kind of thing do you have to keep saying oh yes but men are not entitled to have any woman they want that kind of thing yeah, I used to a bit more, maybe, but I, I kind of think, you know, that should go without saying. And, you know, uh, uh, you know I think it's a worthwhile stud, uh, topic to study. And, and I don't have to preface that so much anymore. Um, you know, I, I think that's obvious. And that, that's kind of also what got me interested in studying the topic is that when I came to do my literature review, not only did I find that there were so few studies of actual incels, uh, asking incels questions themselves. It's just that it was all about exposing the online misogyny of the rhetoric online. And I think that's useful and interesting from one level, but it's also kind of obvious. 
and kind of you know it's like what can we, what can we learn about this uh, this topic uh, beyond oh they say misogynistic things online and uh, you know I, I'm just not that clear I think like the online world is extremely attractive to people who want to be hostile because they can do it without risk of real world retaliation. And I just wonder how much of their online hostility is kind of performative and uh, performatively antagonistic, trying to annoy people. And, you know, you see a lot of that. Well, you, yeah, I suppose I'm just trying to think, and it's not, and it, it's going to sound, and I hate this, it's going to sound all ver- like a bit virtue signally. And I don't, I don't mean it to, because uh, I hate that. But I suppose for, it's hard for you and I, isn't it, to really understand because women would have gone through, you know, from the age of like 13 or 14, just men doing things to them and sort of presume, presuming ownership of them and being upset with them if they don't, you know. And then on the other side of it, I have spoken to uh, like a friend of mine who is a woman. Uh, she <clears throat> said recently that she or she didn't understand how soul-destroying it must be to be rejected. And as she's getting older she's starting to see it and look back at when she was younger and she she used to just be annoyed because she couldn't see it from the man point because we have the we have such different experiences and she was saying i was just annoyed at them and i felt like they were just trying to annoy me and now i see i guess they were looking for a mate or something and maybe now i would have actually just said thanks but no thanks rather than you know so it's about i suppose as you get older a lot of us get more I'm just rambling, really. Sorry. No, no, I think you, you make an important point, And it's like that trade-off between complete sexual invisibility, as an incel might see their reality, and for, uh, uh, for women, just constant, almost borderline harassment. Because like I described the mating market before, the kind of expectation is on the man to make the first move to. So uh, a part of that is that women get caught up as collateral damage of having to uh, receive fumbling uh, attempts at courting from men who are trying to figure it out in trial and error, you know, and, uh, you know, that's not easy for them either. It, it must be exhausting to get constant approach after approach after approach and often, you know, quite, quite uh, you know, off-putting type of approaches and mm. just the sheer volume of it could could be annoying. But that's interesting that you pointed at the, the age in which... Um, sexual invisibility might come online for women um, and crudely put like with uh, evolutionary perspective on mate preferences uh, age and acute to fertility is a, a huge one that men are attracted to in women so the, you, yeah you, you speak to a, a, the point about mate preferences man it's really complicated i suppose to get inside a woman's headspace right and <clears throat> all, a lot of women listening are gonna go what are you talking you can't get inside our headspace and i can't but it must be like how people cold call you, you know, on your phone, which happened more on your home phone. My dad still has one of them and it's calls all the time and it's somebody. And I guess the first couple of times you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm not interested in your mobile phone, whatever. And I had someone the other day, I picked up the phone. I was at his house and, oh no, it was my mobile phone. I don't even know how they got the number. And mm. the woman on the other end was actually quite aggressive. And she said, I said, no, sorry, I'm really not interested. And she said, well, why not? I said, well, because I don't, I don't even, I don't care. I don't want your thing. I would have bought it if I wanted it. And I imagine getting that every day from being 13 to, you know, which obviously shouldn't be happening. Well, I guess other 13-year-old boys. Um, yeah. And as you get older, you, you just, fit, empathy fatigue, I think, and just, ah, screw you. Absolutely. And then you have a cultural script as well that is kind of, oh, I shouldn't have to put up with this misogynist man or, you know, but mm. by the same token, 
if you're an incel male and the expectation is that you have to try and you have to keep trying uh, yeah. what else is there to do nothing would happen if they stood still so yeah. you know there's that and you know there's also a, a kind of a, a weird and it's because of the pickup artist movement where any sort of male improvement with the explicit goal of uh, attracting a woman is kind of seen as almost inherently misogynistic. I'm reminded of even Barack Obama in his autobiography. He spoke about how he used to read uh, Marxist literature to try and impress specific women in his university <laughs> course. And article after article was written about how misogynistic this was. And I was kind of thinking, well, in order to attract women, that's a big motivator for most men to kind of develop themselves. So if you're an incel, you're hearing, don't develop yourself. Don't keep trying clumsily until you figure it out because that's uncomfortable for women. Don't complain that nothing's happening. And it's kind of, you would end up kind of banging your head against a wall a little bit of what do you want from me, you know? And, uh, you know, there is problems with the pickup artist community. I think they kind of take advantage of people and do have a, often have a very in, in misogynistic kind of worldview of sexual attraction and mating in general. But is there a space for an ethical pickup artist kind of world that involves women that could help uh, men improve? You know, would that be better for everyone? Would, would women prefer more competent men in the mating market? I, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's, not. it's so hard. It's so complicated, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? I've, I was watching and I've talked about this in the episodes I did on with ex-Scientologists because we talked about Tom Cruise. Uh, and I was saying in preparation for those episodes, um, I watched a couple of like early 90s Tom Cruise films and he's just a dick. His character is awful by by not just by today's standards, probably almost by those standards back then. Um just the arrogance with which he talks to women, the way he patronizes them, the little smile he has and he's sort of playing himself I think because it's the same role in most of those films and I mm. found myself thinking, wow, imagine that behavior but on a guy who wasn't extremely good looking. So I suppose looks come into what what might be charming to one for if one man does it is is actually very creepy uh if another does it and that's really difficult to get your head around because from charming to creepy there's a that's a huge difference that that's right and you know incels would kind of describe that as chad always wins and no matter what approach he tries it will be perceived as positive and you know that's intuitively kind of uh seems right you know you can imagine that being the case um that uh you know that the same approach is perceived differently and that makes me think of the advice that gets doled out to incels is often oh it's not all about looks you know and uh, some women go for personality and i often find that that's a little bit demeaning because uh how positively someone's personality is perceived is somewhat dependent on uh, a certain level of looks being achieved in the first place. And also, it's just not that easy to cultivate a very winning personality. That's just quite hard, and it's especially mm. hard. We, we've done well. Well, absolutely. Well, well, I, I make the point that for myself, uh, when I speak with incels, I try to compensate for my height with a nice Irish accent. So that's kind of the, tra <laughs> the trade-off game. The compensation yeah. game is working for me. <laughs> that stuff, um, it happens to women as well, doesn't it? I mean, I've seen that before when a woman who's, I suppose, as close to objectively attractive as possible comes over and says hello. And then all the guys are like, God, she has such a great personality. And then there's like, there's the, and, and I suppose we're seeing more of that in movies and films, a type of woman who who is being perceived that way. Maybe they're not as objectively stunning. Uh, and then the men are not 
not picking up on their their personalities as much. So I suppose it goes both ways. Do you, do you see other like women incels? A smaller group, I would imagine. So, um, like I mentioned, the problem is kind of making things harder for uh, women on the mating market too. But uh, the way I would describe it is that it's the difference between uh, many women are now finding it very hard to get the sex and love that they want. And uh, whereas many incels feel that they can't get anything at all. So it's the difference between tough choices, uh, the difference between tough choices and no choices. Um, so, you know, that, that, that the incels would tell you they don't truly believe that a femme cell can exist uh, because, um, you know, the women will always have some choices. They just need to lower their standards a bit. But it's objectively impossible to prove that even an incel exists. How can you objectively prove someone can't uh, gain access to, to sex or, or relationship? So, you know, it must be some to some degree you must need to uh, lean into the identity. Uh, you must embrace the incel identity to become one. Uh, I just wanted to pick up on uh, the last thing you said about men are often not that discerning about personality. There was one very interesting and controversial study uh, that even showed that if a woman was physically attractive enough, that even if she uh, was definitively told in the study that she had borderline personality disorder, that this wouldn't put men off for short-term mating. It would for long-term mating, but it kind of speaks to how uh, much kind of men will tolerate bad personalities uh, on, a, on yeah. a very attractive woman uh, to some degree. It's frustrating for for both men and women, especially as you're younger and you're going out dating. And I'm sure, you know, if we're talking about like the 10%, they're probably the ones who are really getting all the girls and all the guys. Or if I'm really talking about the ones who are turning heads and stuff in bars and things, it's always frustrating being like the best friends of those people. And you think, I've got a more sparkling personality, whether you're a woman or a man or whatever. And those people, that guy... But then also, you know what? I'm happy because there were a couple of guys like that at our school who just like got all the attention, like heads turned all the time. Like, um, and I was always, I was left wondering a bit of like that, like that scene from A Beautiful Mind uh, about like, is it better for the whole group that one of them is or that they're looking at uh, my friend because they'll come over to all of us, or is it worse because con by contrast you look worse? Um, those guys, some of them, have not really developed. Uh, sparkling personalities and the same for the women I knew at that age um, I hope no one's listening who's I think you've got to be a bit average looking or whatever as a teenager a bit awkward but to, to develop intrigue and intellectual curiosity and that stuff right maybe um but you know uh, there's also the flip side to that is the halo effect where we perceive attractive people as just better in a range of different domains uh, and incels would point to a kind of a uh, a body of research called lookism that shows that unattractive people are just kind of uh, seen as worse on a range of uh, metrics, it, you know, even like they fare worse in their job market, uh, their personalities are perceived as worse. So uh, there is a, it, it's more complex than, you know, it's, it, it's not black and white, but um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's not straightforward. Maybe that's you trying to drag the attractive men down. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you said yourself, you're saying their personalities are perceived as better, but they're not better. Mm -hmm. So that, so I think they haven't had to like work to develop interest, interesting personalities. And then some of them are probably less good looking now in their 30s than maybe they were at 18 and look completely different. And those guys, I think, are a bit screwed. And the same with the women in, in that instance. So I just think like I'm happy that I, not that I'm suggesting I have a sparkling personality, but I know that my personality would be probably more boring if I was like the 70, you know, I was all lanky and acne yeah. everywhere and like felt awkward all the time. I was like, I was like, trying to get into photos all the time. You can see my hunched shoulders in every photo. And I think you need some of that maybe.
Yeah, and this is kind of the ultimate. If, if I tend to not try and get into advice to incels as much as possible, I think often that's quite demeaning to the problems they face and represent in society. Uh, but you know, if I was to give advice, it would be to try and maybe kind of cultivate your own success game, to cultivate your own arena where you might shine. Like for example, there's no point in me uh, at about five foot seven going out to nightclubs to try and pull a gym bunny who wants a muscle-bound hulk who's you know uh, you know that kind of arena because i won't be seen as i won't dominate that uh, prestige hierarchy but if you bring me into an intellectual debate festival or something like that i might impress someone by asking the right question or you know that's my arena uh, so to try and maybe find your niche uh, as much as possible that's great advice yeah you just got to kind of try to find your own, build your own new game and uh, as narrow as possible, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I like that. The eagle-eared among you, although I don't know that eagles can hear that well, uh, probably not. Um, but anyway, you'll have noticed that my microphone audio has gone up in quality. Others among you will have noticed subconsciously and thought, wow, I am enjoying the sound of this podcaster's voice somewhat today. That's because I've got a brand new Shure MV7 microphone. Now, a lot of you ask me all the time what I use as you want to sound better in Zoom calls or start your own podcast, do some singing, la la la. This is me on my old microphone, the Uhuru, which is pretty good. And this is the difference with the Shure MV7. It's a proper piece of equipment and it lights up when I speak, which I like, and it gives you loads of options on the Shure Plus Motive app that it comes with um, so you can get the precise sound right. So um, you can just leave it on auto settings if you're not that bothered about the exact sound. The MV7 can also be used with USB so it's easier for amateurs like me. You just want to plug it into the laptop. You don't need, but it also has the XLR that professionals like to use. So that's the whole point of the MV7. It can be used by both. Click the link in the show notes to check it out and know that you can use my code on the edge 20, all capital letters, one word, for 20% off all products in the Sure UK online shop until July 31st, 2021. So that's sure.co.uk and on the edge 20 capitals, all one word, uh, on sure.co.uk, where they do all sorts of headphones and mics. It's a great deal. Tell me, what is a, a beautiful person? Because I know you're doing work on beauty and, and uh, uh, what we need to, what people do to make themselves attractive. Is beauty immutable, innate? Is it, uh, or because I know a couple hundred years ago, all the paintings were of these sort of larger uh, ginger women with babies all over them, you know, um, and people aren't really into that now. Does it change? Mm. What's, what's, what is going on? Uh, so uh, the evolutionary psychology studies have kind of found robust evidence that there is a universality uh, to mate preferences across cultures. Um, and while you might find some cross-cultural variants in and historical variants in how plump or slim uh, the preference, but you will still find that even someone uh, plump who was considered attractive, they will still have that waist-hip ratio. So the body shape is still universally perceived as uh, attractive. So in terms of mate preferences, what evolutionary psychology studies have found is that uh, for the most part, men and women value similar things in a partner. They always towards the top is love, intelligence, and kindness are consistently at the top. The two areas where um, they differ strongly is that males tend to value um, physical attractiveness more or what they consider to be physical attractiveness, which is cues to fertility. 
<laughs> so like smooth skin, neotenous looking face, uh, the waist hip ratio, uh, whereas women value socioeconomic status. So where you find the sexes are the same, where the evolutionary pressures were the same, where they're different, that's where you expect to see a sex difference. So, you know, male fertility can extend uh, far beyond the age of, you know, 30, whereas women's tends to decline after that age. Um, so, it, you know, it's the cues to that fertility declining. That means women are perceived as less attractive to men. Um, but yeah, so something that's kind of uh, unnoticed uh, is everyone focuses on the, how they're so different uh, and men valuing physical attractiveness more than, than women. Uh, but we kind of neglect to mention that, um, you know, consistently at the top is uh, love, intelligence, and kindness. And actually, even one of the things I studied in my um, uh, with my incel study was uh, incels mate preferences and their perceptions of um, uh, of female mate preferences. And incels overestimated how important they think physical attractiveness and socioeconomic status is to women, uh, and they underestimated intelligence, humor, and kindness. Um, I also found that incels didn't have higher standards than non-incels. Often incels are accused of just simply having too high standards. But my study found the opposite. That, and, and that would have made sense from an evolutionary point of view for me, that they would have lower standards because it wouldn't make sense evolutionarily if you're a low value male uh, in terms of your mate value to concentrate your mating efforts on all the high value uh, females who are getting attention from the high value males it, it doesn't make sense it makes sense to kind of have adaptive self-assessment and re recalibrate your your efforts um uh, so yeah I, I found they didn't have higher standards they had a very low perception of their own mate value as well so a very low kind of self-image and uh but yeah one paradoxical finding i had was that incels underestimated women's overall preferences so they overestimated certain preferences underestimated other certain ones and overall thought that women wanted less out of 10 in terms of characteristics uh, than than the female participants actually reported so that was that was a, an, a, an unexpected finding i would have thought that they would be over think oh women want they have just too high standards you know based on their rhetoric um but no, they, they actually perceived women as having low sta lower standards, which was maybe that's what's going on psychologically, that they're infuriated by thinking that women should value them as a mate, but they, they don't. It's interesting what you say as well, like they, they overestimated how much women cared about looks and things like that and underestimated maybe how uh, things like being funny and clever and stuff like that. I suppose if you've created this incel identity for yourself, uh, and you think, oh, okay, it's because I don't have the socioeconomic status and I'm not good looking. That's the problem. Uh, and it might be very hurtful to look inside and go, maybe I'm not that funny and charming. I'm not. Maybe I'm not that as clever as I think I am. There's the Dunning-Kruger effect of the people who are less intelligent believe that they are more intelligent typically. So that would be very hurtful for them to look inside and go, God, maybe I'm just not that interesting of a of a person. Yeah, and but also kind of mate preferences are complex and they're dynamic and they're interactive. So. Uh, you know, the humor, the personality, the intelligence might only come online if a, a certain threshold of physical attractiveness is passed. So, for example, height is an easy one because women have a very strong preference uh, in terms of height. So if a man is five foot two, uh, I think it would be he would have to be extremely intelligent, extremely funny 
to compensate for that. So it's kind of like levers pulling against each other. Um, uh, so incels might say that. Uh, but yeah, I think um, once you have that kind of view of the world, you look for evidence of it. And a, a black and white schema of the world is a very seductive way to see the world because, you know, it's kind of, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything you'll see is a nail. And if, you, if you're looking for evidence of women's superficiality in the mating market, you could probably find loads of it. You know, I think about this with any sort of debate. If I made up my mind this morning to get up and say, I'm going to look for um, evidence uh, to prove that the world is misogynistic, you could find tons of it. If I make up my mind, I'm going to find loads of evidence to prove that the world is misandrist. You could find loads of it. So it's like, uh, you know, it's breaking from that uh, black and white view of the world. And uh, yeah, that kind of tendency for interpersonal victimhood. That, that was a big thing that my study found. Um, we used the tendency for interpersonal victimhood scale. And incels scored extremely high on this compared to non-incels. And the reason I hypothesized that they would so, so the tendency for interpersonal victimhood is a new scale uh, personality construct, and it's comprised of four uh, dimensions. So one is the need for recognition. So the preoccupation with having the legitimacy of your grievance acknowledged in cells very strong on that. Moral elitism. So the belief that uh, the individual or their in-group uh, behaves more morally than others. And uh, just to give you an example on that one, I had an interaction online recently with an incel who tweeted out that uh, all people care about is looks and money. They don't value people who aren't good looking. And I said, by extension, does that mean you? Do you only care about uh, people who are rich or good looking? And he kind of didn't really have an answer. And it kind of it, that highlights that moral elitism that you would think that he would be different, more moral. The third uh, uh, measure of the construct or dimension of the construct is lack of empathy. So this comes from the belief that because of their own victimization, an individual cares less about the pain of others. So it's like, uh, you know, you feel entitled to behave hostile because, well, I get a lot of hostility my way. And then the final one is rumination. So the preoccupation with uh, reflecting on past instances of victimization. And the reason I thought that incels would score high on this is because of their belief in the black pill. Are you familiar with the black pill? This is about uh, matrix or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, many incels subscribe to what's known as the black pill. And it's based on, like you say, a derivative of the red pill from the movie The Matrix, where the main character is given the choice of taking the red pill uh, to see reality as it really is, or to remain in the blissful ignorance of the blue pill. So the black pill uh, for incels describes a particularly bleak truth to swallow. Uh, and in this case, it means that they're sexual um, attraction is mostly fixed and that there was nothing they could ever do to improve their prospects. So that kind of fits with this tendency for interpersonal victimhood uh, personality construct to constantly see yourself uh, as a victim in that way. Yeah, and it, it kind of describes like an external locus of control that your uh, what happens in your life is uh, all to do with external forces. Uh, it's an ongoing feeling that you're a victim and that's central to your identity and uh, it, it, you can't affect change. And there's not much less attractive than victimhood. Right. It, well, attractive in terms of a, a mating market, but in terms of online identity these days, 
it's very attractive <laughs> and yeah. maybe incels want a, a piece of that because vir uh, vi virtuous victimhood is very much in vogue these days uh, so perhaps they're like oh i want a piece of that pie <laughs> yeah there's a lot of that i got frustrated somebody i know on twitter the other day was just saying i i'm taking a break to to take care of myself to look after myself you should do this too or something and i just thought like, like it was very like there's this war imagery going on about just being alive just living has become like we're in a battle it's a war and i understand that of course it is for a lot of people but this person was was talking to everyone you should all take care of as if we're all in a big war and i just thought yeah. a lot of us are all right you know and yeah. some people have some problems that no that's interesting because alongside my phd i'm also taking my counseling qualifications as well hmm. and this is kind of a debate that i get into with my classmates uh, often where they kind of they would have the idea that everyone could benefit or should go to counseling and uh, kind of almost should always be in counseling almost because and i said well you know and it, when we came to debate it i said uh, well what you know not everyone needs counseling surely and they said well you know you could be going through your life completely functional and happy not realizing that you need <laughs> counseling and i kind of thought what is the goal here that's like python-esque <laughs> if you talk to people enough you could you could mine and i describe it as mining for trauma yeah. and trying to draw a straight line into uh what's in their past <laughs> and unresolved and causing them issues and i kind of take the view that it's more important to look at someone's functionality on a day-to-day -day basis and often what keeps us very functional is our self-deception so, you know, if you really talk to someone long enough, you could maybe make them see that in reality, maybe they should be depressed. So yeah. it kind of, I, I just took the, the, the other view, but it's almost like a therapeutic culture that being in counseling is almost seen as an inherent moral good. And you should, and it's a, 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 the right way to process your emotions. And, uh, you know, not everyone does that. It would be good for me personally. I would love it, but uh, I recognize that that wouldn't be for everyone. It would be torture for a lot of people. Mm. I've done I've done counseling and I love I love it. It's fantastic for me. But but yeah, the war imagery, this idea because I I don't go into counseling thinking God everything's so hard and I, I think wow I'm so lucky I, everything's so great and I, I know it's not for some people. I, I totally respect that, but for a lot of us it is. But I'm going to go to this therapy anyway. I was in Buenos Aires. It's like fifteen dollars or fifteen pounds or whatever to go because everyone goes there and i think another interesting maybe there's something at the back of the mind of some of these people that you've been talking to who are saying oh everybody should go and that kind of thing and what if you don't realize that you're unhappy or something um there is at least in argentina because it, i think it is the therapy capital of the world there um, th there's something of a status issue there's a status that you know this if you go to therapy you are probably high status intelligent educated uh rich and if you if you don't go to therapy, then you're you're not in you know. So there's there's some of that as well. Yeah, and there's kind of a demeaning uh, way to look at men's problems uh, in particular. People often say, "Oh, they just need to cry more or talk more." And I'm like, it's kind of demeaning to the material issues that they might be facing that are probably more. Uh, but incels would be very negative against therapy, so I've got my kind of work cut out for me there in terms of uh, helping to try and reach them. <laughs> But I, have to, I think that the, it's a, the breakdown is a misconception of what therapy is meant to be. I think they think that, well, therapists can't help with the external problems. They can't right. make me not an incel. And it's like, well, therapy is never meant to, to do that. It's meant to help you uh, come to terms with your own emotions about your 
the situation you find yourself in, whatever that might be. But yeah, I think there is a therapeutic culture and moralizing of uh, a kind of over emotionalizing and rumination uh, about uh, your own. It's kind of talk like emotional literacy of constantly looking. We're very neurotic, you know, as a, and, and that, that's an interestingly from a cultural point of view, a very big difference between uh, Western culture and the East. Uh, so there's the collectivist identity versus the individualist. And in the West, we're very much, we define ourselves as uh, reaching our potential and becoming the real me very internal kind of uh, locus of identity whereas in the west the collectivist identity would define mm, themselves as yeah somebody's uh somebody's father somebody's son somebody's your your group identity and it gives you an automatic meaning and purpose uh whereas you're always becoming yourself in the west you have to individualize achieve self-actualization and that can be perhaps pressurizing yeah i think so and there's also there's the nocebo effect. I've been reading David Robson's new book about the the expectation effect. Nocebo being the opposite of placebo. And uh, if you, if everybody's telling you like they're all ill and they they're going to counselling, we all need to fight this thing. I think it could it could make other people feel like oh maybe I'm not happy. And then you could start with the nocebo. It's so strong the nocebo effect. It will start to make you really unhappy. Even physically, you'd start to feel quite unhappy. One of the yeah. one of the things I got out of therapy, I just went to see this guy once a week, and it was like it was also a Spanish lesson for me it was just perfect i was out in argentina and as i say it's like 15 dollars a week everyone goes to therapy there i'm like why not and one of the the main main things i got from it was actually to stop blaming everybody else in my life um mm. which i didn't even think i was doing had you asked me at the beginning i would have said that that wasn't the case and then he he just sort of reframed things and i had to hear it so many times over a period of like six months. And every time I was like, yeah, yeah, but I do blame myself. Yeah, yeah, but I do. And I started to realize, no, I, I'm actually, I really am not taking, taking, you know, I need to just sort of stand up and go, okay, I'm responsible for a lot of these feelings. It's not other people's, you know, thing. And let's see where I go with that. Instead of this blaming everyone else, and I suppose maybe incels could, could uh, learn from that. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not a religious person at all, but from the counseling or therapeutic point of view, the kind of the biblical quote of our, um, the, the religious kind of God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change yeah, the nice. things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. That to me sums up. That's nice. Uh, isn't it right? It, it, mm. it kind of that to me sums up what counseling should be a kind of a mindset to get someone into of, of that uh, totally. And it reminds me of the, I'm getting very poetic now, the Rudyard <laughs> Kipling po- uh, poem, if, you know, that to me sums up kind of peak yeah. uh, psychological well-being. It's like you, you yeah. can treat success and failure as the imposters they both are and look them both square in the face. It, oh, th- yeah. right up my street. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. Instead of this, like, uh, everyone's against us and we all need to take a break. All right. You know, but oh, and again, I'll just, pre- you know, I'll just add, you know, some people do need that. So fair enough. You know, it's just not that everyone needs it all. I like that religious quote. I hate religion so much that I'm like averse <laughs> to it. I'm almost shaking. Like I'm not going to want to like what he says. And then I quite like that one. And then the other one is like, what is it? Uh, judge not, le- what is it? Lest you be judged or something. That's a nice one as well. Those, If I was a nutter um, Christian, I'd have those two on my wall. Yeah, you've got to kind of find ways to derive some benefit from it. Surely it's a, you know, the, there must be, there must be some 
wisdom there. But yeah, I'm kind of like you. I almost have to preface. I'm not a religious man, but here's here's <laughs> yeah. a religious quote. Yeah, I wouldn't have the ones about like uh, stoning gay people to death or whatever. No, not for me. Steer clear. thanks william for coming on and informing us all on all things incel it was great talking to william i feel like we had a really nice chat we could have been sat opposite one another sipping tea or whatever people do these days uh, and I didn't even get time to ask about other things he's been looking into, like birth strike, where people are having fewer children or they're refusing to have kids as a sort of protest against the environment. Um, and I didn't ask him about that. Remember to help him out by going to the survey in the show notes and volunteering information about what you do to be more attractive. You'll also find that and and him and his tweets and thoughts on at Costello William on Twitter. Those of you who are new to the podcast after hearing me on Jordan Harbin welcome please do subscribe and tell everyone you know about this podcast which is growing by the day thanks to people like jordan my old listeners sticking through the good and bad times check out my episode on jordan harbinger where we chat exorcism and pedophilia and all sorts of crazy things back to william listen to the bonus chat in which we go into lots of detail about the culture wars and ireland and social media and the like it's on patreon.com slash Andrew Gold. Oh, that's awful. It's on patreon.com slash Andrew Gold, or you can join as a member on Apple Podcasts or YouTube. In all those places, you'll also get ads-free full episodes and early access to them. They tend to come out the previous Wednesday before a Monday full release. Do keep reviewing on Apple and CastBox. There are no new ones to read out this week. Next, we'll be on Apagan to talk about drunk and high animals. But until then, see you next week. Not much of a catchphrase, is it? See you next week. I say that every week. See you next week. As if that's like, that's not an interesting way of ending the podcast. I say that every... Right. I don't know. Um, hasta luego. Hasta la vista, baby. Um, bye. Adam Buxton does that. He goes, bye. He shouts it really loud. But yeah. Until next. Until. Now, um... Um, 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 thanks for listening.